0: The Estrella Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton, Book One, The Voyage South, Chapter Fourteen, in which the Molly sails south a second time. After the Molly returned, Alana found herself even more isolated from the rest of the village. News traveled quickly in the small community and it was only hours after she had spoken with Roaring Jack and Skarm that everyone knew that she had denied Astrea's death with unshakable conviction. Since everyone had lost a father, brother, husband, or son to the sea, they at first understood her refusal to believe in the finality of death, and most of the women, and some of the elder girls, sympathized when they came to pay their respects, bearing traditional gifts of food. However, as the days lengthened into weeks, conventional understanding waned into barely concealed impatience, and finally to avoidance. Only Roaring Jack's wife, Molly, continued to visit Alanna. She was a generous woman, with an engaging smile, good humour seemingly unaffected by her husband's shouting, and a kindness for all needy children, animals, and birds. Throughout the summer— she regularly puffed her way up the steep path to Alanna's cottage. Once there, she sank into Alanna's rocking chair, drank rose-hip tea, and told Alanna about the doings of her four married daughters and their children, and all the details of village gossip. excepting only the villagers' increasingly frequent allusions to the crazy lady who had married a strange man and given birth to an even stranger son who had come to a bad end. Alanna knew of the other villagers' opinion, but she never spoke of it. From Molly she learned that Roaring Jack was having a season of fishing so far beyond even his luck that the other skippers would have been jealous, had they not also been exceeding their own expectations. The village fleet returned early from every voyage, loaded to the limits of safety. The drying racks groaned under the weight of fish, and the village's cooper could not keep up with the demand for barrels in which to store the unexpected bounty. When Molly suggested that this was a good year for Alanna to look for more opportunities to trade needlework for the fish she would need in the winter, there was no response. So as Midsummer came and went, Molly grew concerned for Alanna's welfare, as well as with her persistent refusal to accept that Estrella was dead— when no amount of persuasion had any effect on Alanna, Molly recruited Skarm. "'Skarm, you get your arse up there and tell Lana she's got to look after herself. She's talking wild stuff about sailing south, and I can't put no sense in her.' When Skarm reached her door, Alanna was ready for him. Before the old fisherman could do more than sip the mug of ale she offered him, and long before he was ready to open the conversation he had been dreading— she spoke in a voice as calm as someone observing that the weather was clearing. "'Ian, you're sailing south with Roaring Jack again, and I'm going with you.' She was interrupted by a gurgle as Scarm choked on his ale. "'You remember I told Roaring Jack he had to go look for Astrea, and he said he had fishing to do first, and I said when the catch is in, and he nodded.' "'This is going to be news to Molly,' said Skarm cautiously. "'I told her, but I don't think she was listening. She's so worried about me that she won't listen to what I'm saying. Whenever I talk, her eyes glaze over. Then she tells me what everyone's doing, and slips in a suggestion or two about how I should be doing likewise. I love her, but she's driving me a bit crazy.' Skarm twitched at the last word. "'That's what they say I am, isn't it?' Skarm took a long pull at his mug. Alanna nodded. "'So when do we sail?' she asked. "'We had good luck again, so—' "'Thanks to Jan. "'I don't know about that. Yan is—well, is something he hasn't told us. "'That Estrella's alive.' "'I sure hope what you say is true, Alanna.' "'But what can I do short of calling him a liar? "'And Jack, too, because he believes Jan. "'All they have to say is that I was in no shape to know what was happening at the time, "'which is true. "'But that means Jan can say anything he likes and be believed by most everyone. "'He's a hero, what with the big fish and the way he told his story.' "'I know that, Ian. "'I don't know how to face him down, either.' and to make him seem even more lucky, the Mollys brought home more than any of the other boats every time. "'Full hold every trip, and deck cargo as well.' "'But he's going south, isn't he?' "'Roaring Jack keeps his uh, promises,' said Scarm loyally, but his tone was dubious. "'Is Jan aboard for the voyage south?' "'I don't know, Alanna,' said Skarm, uncomfortably. "'I can't get Roaring Jack to say one way or t'other, let alone when.' He mutters about the catch, and turns away. "'As you said, Skarm, he believes everything Jan says. "'He's filled with guilt, Alanna, and he can't think clearly.' "'I gathered that, from the way Molly won't say anything about his state of mind. "'She never does.' "'They're private people,' said Skarm. "'Leastways, when they're not shouting at each other.' Alanna nodded. They sat in silence, broken only by Skarm taking the occasional swallow of ale. Then Alanna casually dropped the question she'd been holding in her mind. "'Is it two or three days until the molly sails free?' The word was out of his mouth before he could stop himself, and then there was nothing more to add.' Scarm finished his ale, with Alanna smiling pleasantly at him in a silence that neither cared to break. When he got up to leave, Alanna held the door open. "'Good. Thank you for coming, Ian. You needn't tell the skipper that I'll be aboard. When we're at sea, I'll get him to keep on going south. You'll see.' As Scarm started down the hill— he thought he saw someone's shadow on the landward side of Alanna's cottage, but when he stopped to look again, he could not make out what had caught his eye. He sighed, resigning himself to accept what he could not change, without making the situation even worse. If he told the skipper about the conversation, he broke faith with Alanna. If he didn't tell, he was complicit in her scheme. And if the molly did not sail south— his suspicions would be neither confirmed nor set at rest. That night a northeast wind blew at Alanna's door and rattled the shutter on her window that looked out over the village towards the harbour. She stepped outside and shivered. The wind had been cooled by the icebergs of summer, so she closed her door tightly and stopped up the draught under it with the length of old rope. She wedged her window almost closed, leaving a small gap to freshen the cottage, drew the curtains and banked the fire for the night, as if it were winter. The pines on the hill above her cottage whistled and sighed in a rising wind, competing with the distant roar of breakers at the harbour mouth. Something scraped across her chimney, but she did not hear it. She checked the door and windows against the wind, and smiled wistfully, at the memory of working with Estrella's father to make the cottage weatherproof. Alanna heard nothing but storm sounds. Something nagged at the back of her mind, when the chimney no longer hooted occasionally, but she told herself there must have been a change in the wind's direction. She did not hear Yan carefully closing the window in her bedroom, nor did she notice that the curtains no longer pulsed with the gusts. A little smoke— puffed out of her fireplace as she climbed into her bed, and the wood she had added burned fitfully, but she was not aware of it. She lay against her pillows, planning how she would stow away on the molly, and what she would say to Roaring Jack when they were at sea. Beside her bed, her candle flickered and went out. Her eyes closed. Yan crouched behind a tree and shivered in almost total darkness, watching and waiting. Clouds blew in from the northwest, blotting out the sky. He had intended to stay until just before dawn, but as the first drops of rain drove into his hiding place, he changed the improvised plan he had hatched while he was eavesdropping on Scarm and Alanna's conversation. Just give her a scare, he murmured. Maybe, maybe make her a bit sick. "'for a couple of days,' he rationalized "'as he approached the north side of the cottage. "'And then, when she's sick, "'and I let out that the crazy lady "'wanted to stow away on the trip south, "'the whole thing will blow over, "'and then it'll be winter, "'and Jack'll not be going south again.' "'Alanna's ladder, "'which he had found against the north wall, "'was still leaning against the chimney. "'He climbed back up into the dark "'until the wind blew rain into his face,' and removed the slab of wood he had placed on top of the chimney. Smothering a cough from the stale smoke, he climbed down. When he was back on the ground, he could no longer see even the outline of the cottage roof against the wind-driven clouds. As he was lowering the ladder, the wind nearly slammed it and him against the window that he had closed with such care. Panting with barely suppressed panic, he put the ladder flat at his feet, Groped his way back to the path and down towards his home, he was in bed, listening to his mother snoring when he realized that he had left the smoke-stained slab of wood at the foot of Alanna's chimney next morning. Molly climbed up the path to find out what Alanna had to say about Scarm's visit because it was that time of the morning when women stopped for tea. She did not knock at the door; she frowned at the shuttered darkness inside and opened the door wide to see what she was doing. So it was that when she looked into Alanna's room, there was just enough light for her to see her lying with her face in her pillow. "'Wake up, darling. I've brought you—' Molly began cheerfully, and then stopped. A pitcher of fresh goat's milk slid from her hands and smashed on the floor. "'No!' she wailed as she touched Alanna's cold hand and face. "'No, no, no!' She was still weeping when she reached her home. Roaring Jack frowned at her as she sobbed out the worst thought of all. "'Jack, it was smoke. I could smell it. She must have did it herself.' "'No more of that, girl,' he said as firmly as he could. "'Twas grief, and thinking too much.' "'He turned away so that she could not hear him add, cause I didn't do as I shoulda.' "'Soon the whole village knew. "'A few people echoed Molly's surmise, "'but elders who refused to even think about suicide "'shushed them into silence. "'Grief,' they said firmly, "'and grief became the explanation. "'That afternoon a line of villagers "'climbed the path to the cottage,' where Molly presided over the wake. They solemnly murmured their goodbyes over the open coffin, and on their way back down the hill they reminisced about Alanna's singing, her needlework, her foreign husband, and her unlucky son. Later that day, Skarm was sadly adding one more entry in the born and buried book when he heard a soft knock. Closing the book and sliding it into a drawer took only a moment— but the memory of what he had recorded haunted him as he opened his door, candle in one hand. He nodded a silent welcome when he saw Cam's upturned face, but when he lowered his light, he frowned, because he saw that there was something hidden under the jacket that hung over Cam's left arm. A word in private, Scarm. Skarm nodded, as he had done so many times before when visited by villagers who needed to talk in confidence. He sat back down at the table, Cam opposite him, and composed himself to listen. Cam took a slab of wood from under his much-mended jacket and laid it on the table between them. "'Scarm, I found this back at Alanna's cottage.' Scarm poked the blackened surface of the wood, rubbed his finger with his thumb, and sniffed. "'It's covered in soot, but it hasn't been burned,' he said. "'Did Molly or Jack use it to clean out her fireplace?' Cam shook his head. "'Jack didn't go near. "'He didn't even go to the wake. "'After the viewing, he took off walking to the cliffs. "'That ain't what I'm here about. "'Listen, when I went to pay respects, "'there was too many inside, "'so I walked around the cottage "'while I was waiting my turn to say me farewells, "'and this here was by itself, right close to the chimney.' "'It's a cedar shake,' said Scarm, wiping his fingers. "'It's been split too thick to go on a roof.' and too thin to be split a second time.' "'You know,' said Cam, "'it's the right size to close off a chimney.' Skarm looked at Cam solemnly. "'What are you saying, Cam?' "'The soot sticks,' said Cam, holding up a smudged palm and fingers. "'Now there's three of us with it on our hands.' Three? "'You? Me?' "'and Jan, both his hands. "'He'd tried to wash it off before he went to the wake with his ma, but I saw—' "'Did he notice you?' "'Again Cam shook his head. "'I don't think so.' "'Then don't tell him. "'Or anybody else.' "'Wouldn't even think of it,' said Cam. "'We got suspicions, that's all.' "'And we got eyes too,' said Cam, as he stood up to leave.' Not long after Cam left him, Scarm again heard knocking at his door. This time it was Roaring Jack who sat opposite him. The skipper had a skin of whiskey with him, and they shared what little was left. "'It ain't my fault,' Roaring Jack began, in what for him was a hushed voice. "'But I shoulda—' A long series of shouldas later, Scarm heard what he had expected to hear when he first opened the door i got to be heading south to do what should have been done back then.' He also detected something in Roaring Jack's voice that he'd never heard before, and though he could not find the exact word to describe it, despair came close. Much later that evening, after listening to many drunken repetitions, recriminations, and resentful oaths directed at the unfairness of life and the fickle nature of luck, Scarm stood at his door, watching Roaring Jack start his stumbling way back home. When the skipper's lantern finally bobbed and weaved out of sight, Scarm turned to go inside. He almost dropped his candle as a voice spoke out of the night. Scarm. "'I heard,' said Cam softly. "'So, here's my plan.' The next day, fresh earth was mounded over another grave in the village cemetery. Then, as was the custom, first the family, then the crewmates, and finally almost everyone in the village, all trooped back down from the cemetery to Alanna's cottage, where, in order of their closeness of blood and belonging, they entered and took something by which to remember her. When it came to Skarm's turn— he opened the chest that Estrella's father had made. He took the bundle of drawings and writing that Estrella had studied, and as an afterthought, a little leather bag of green stones that clinked as he dropped it into his jacket pocket. Two days later, Roaring Jack's voice echoed through the village as the Molly slipped her lines to the shore and hoisted sails. Soon her bluff bows charged the confused seas between the headlands, and she was out of sight— the villagers who had seen her leave shook their heads, pursed their lips, and returned to whatever they had been doing. The second trip south was even less secret than the first, and it was universally judged to be beyond foolishness. They had been kept from forcibly restraining boat and crew because of their conviction that a skipper had the right to sail his boat the way he chose. More importantly, nobody wanted to be the first to tackle Roaring Jack, Red Ian, or Skarm. "'least of all when they were all together. "'And even if they had done something to stop them, "'nobody knew what to do next. "'When the molly had cleared the harbour-mouth "'and was dipping up and down on the steady waves of the open sea, "'Roaring Jack shaded his eyes against the bright sunshine "'and scanned a sea flecked with small white caps. "'Ease the sheets!' boomed the skipper, "'as he pulled the tiller towards his belt-buckle "'and then steadied the boat on course.' We're on our way. Reddy and Yan and Scarm bent over the main and jib sheets, glancing back at Roaring Jack for his approval when the set of the sails was to his liking. As they watched, the skipper frowned as Cam climbed out of the fish hold onto the foredeck and made his way astern to the cockpit. He tossed a small bedroll pack down the companionway into the cabin and threw his jacket after it. What in flaming blazes are you doing here, lad? "'demanded Roaring Jack. "'Very nicely, thank you, Skipper. "'Glad to be aboard. "'Who asked you?' "'Well, I heard the molly was leaving for the south, "'so I stowed away last night. "'Stand by to come about. "'We're taking you home.' "'Alana,' Cam began. "'What's she got to do with it?' "'Roaring Jack demanded, his blue eyes glaring. "'She didn't want Strayer to go to sea, "'so why would she want you to go after him?' "'I told him,' began Scarm, "'that the molly was leaving for the south,' said Cam firmly. "'That was when we decided I should go too.' "'We decided? We?' Roaring Jack repeated incredulously. "'Well,' Scarm began. The skipper turned his scowl on him. "'Well what, Scarm?' he demanded. "'I figured we needed another pair of hands. What with me having only one that's any use in a blow, so I—' "'Why, in blazes didn't you tell me what you're up to!' "'Do we come about now?' Yan asked, hopefully. "'Blay that!' Roaring Jack rumbled. "'We're just going fishing, same as before, aren't we, Skipper?' Yan's voice became querulous. "'It's not about looking for stray, is it?' "'You think?' said Cam, with a shrewd glance at Scarm. "'Something between anger and bewilderment.' "'passed across Roaring Jack's face, "'and he spoke so low that Cam could barely hear him. "'Cam, did Lana think I'd never do the job? "'Is that why she?' "'His voice trailed off. "'Can't say, Skipper,' said Cam. "'All's I know is she would have wanted me to go with you. "'Could be it's cause I was the one "'that told her what the village is saying about her. "'You know.' "'How she's supposed to be crazy.' "'You told her that?' Roaring Jack was incredulous. "'Well, yeah. First time I saw her, it kind of slipped out. I was trying to say that I didn't think the way they did, and it didn't come out quite the way I meant. After that, we talked a few times. About Strayer, and his dad, and how she missed them both, you know, that kind of stuff.' "'You spent last night in the fish-hold,' said Red Ian, with the air of a man who has reached a firm conclusion. "'How'd you know?' Red Ian sniffed meaningfully. Cam shifted to the lee-side of the cockpit. "'I should take you back,' said Roaring Jack slowly, choosing his way amongst impossible alternatives. "'But we can use another in the crew, so I won't.' "'But it'll be yourself who'll be telling Silver Don and the lads on the Ronnie B "'why you jumped ship on him and then stowed away on the molly.'" "'Suits me, skipper.'" Favourable winds and gentle seas carried the molly southwards. This time, Roaring Jack knew from astrea's sketches where they were, so they did not have to feel their way close to the shore, but could stand off to the eastward where the cliffs and headlands did not roil the land and sea breezes, and as a result each day they went faster and further than before. Jan's resentment of Cam was obvious, but the cheerful competence of the younger, smaller boy made it easy for the men to appreciate his presence. When he was not needed for other tasks, he found a place beside Roaring Jack, Estrella's sketches in his hand, taking note of each passing headland. Towards the end of the first day, Roaring Jack grunted approval when Cam pointed to a distinctive headland that they had been looking for. Close hauled. We're heading in back of that bluff. That evening, Cam lit a driftwood fire on the sand close to where they beached the Molly's bow. He filleted a big cod that Skarm had caught during the day, rolled the portions in cornmeal, and fried them with some of the onions he had thought to bring with him in his bedroll. He was thanked by a profound silence, broken only by murmurs of satisfaction. As they finished their meal, the wind dropped, so that the scrubby trees along the shore stood still, silhouetted against a darkening sky. Waves hushed along the sand as the last light faded and the first stars gleamed. Roaring Jack stood, lit from below by the remains of the fire. "'Tomorrow, or maybe the next day,' "'We'll stop coasting and strike out southard wind and weather permitting. "'If the wind holds fair, we'll have a broad reach with the wind to starboard. "'By evening—perhaps a bit later—we'll reach the shore where we—where we—where we lost Strayer.' He looked down at his crew, knowing that it was one thing to run before a storm to avoid being forced onto a rocky lee shore, but quite another to deliberately sail out of sight of land— in the hope that they would make the same landfall as before. Cam nodded, as did Scarm. Red Ian raised his huge shoulders in a shrug, as if to say that he was ready for whatever Roaring Jack decided. Only Yan looked fixedly into the fire, refusing to meet his eyes. "'But—' Yan began. Roaring Jack talked him down. "'We'll be off at first light, then.' Scarm and Roaring Jack strolled back towards where the molly was beached. Yan sat very still for a few heartbeats, and then followed them. Red Ian took it upon himself to scour the frying pan with sand at the water's edge. He brought it back to the fire where he stood, towering over Cam. "'You know Strayer's markings,' he began awkwardly. When Cam nodded, he glanced around to be sure he was not overheard, and went down on one knee. Well. "'Straya made a picture of me when the skipper wasn't looking, "'so's I could give it to Pearl to remember me by.' "'Angus, daughter?' he nodded. "'And—and—and it—well, um—it worked. "'She's waiting for me.' "'I'm happy for both of you, Red,' said Cam. "'And it's why I'm aboard, to find Straya. First thing, when we find him, I'm going to thank him.' He stood back up to his full height. "'I got the first watch,' he muttered. As he turned to go back to the molly, Cam looked thoughtfully after him. To his surprise, the big man seemed to have no doubt that Estrella was alive. He picked up the remains of supper and was about to kick sand into the dying fire when Yan returned from the boat. "'Lost me knife,' he muttered. "'Guess I put it down when I was eaten.' He wandered around the fire hopelessly. Cam ran his fingers systematically through the sand where Yan had been sitting, and after a few passes his fingers bumped into the hilt, and he held it out to Yan. For the first time since the journey began, Yan had to face Cam. Hoping that the gathering darkness would shield him from his steady gaze, he reached for the knife. As his fingers closed on it, Cam caught his wrist— "'Yan tried to jerk away, but though Cam was the smaller of the two, "'he was both wiry and determined. "'Yan, tell me what really happened!' "'Taken by surprise, Yan tried to tug his hand away, "'but Cam held it firm in a two-handed grip. "'I believe Strayer's ma, Yan, "'so you're going to have a problem telling me that he's dead. "'Yan strove with the dilemma that had tortured him "'since their return to the village. "'If Astraea was alive—' Then he was not a murderer, but if he admitted anything of what had really happened, he would be exposed as a treacherous lying coward. Over the summer he'd been basking in the village's pity for his misadventure and admiration for his luck in catching the big fish. There had even been some who said that it was he who had brought good fortune to the village. Jan had encouraged both misapprehensions with modest shrugs but on a darkened beach far from the village neither strategy would work. "'Yan! What really happened?' Cam insisted. Yan squirmed. His lies had been plausible at first, but Alanna's knowing had trumped them, unsettling Roaring Jack, and convincing both Cam and Skarm, all three of whom believed that Alanna had the power of second sight— His swiftly concocted scheme to silence Alana had been more successful than he had dreamed, but its outcome was not what he had hoped. "'There were maybe eight, ten, a dozen men, and they all ran after me,' Yan began slowly as if the words were being pulled out of him. His voice rose, and he gabbled faster and faster. They shouted like they wanted me to stop and get knocked down like like, like Strayer. So I kept going, and I got to the boat, and they shot arrows at us, and they hit Skarm, and Skipper pushed me down so I wouldn't get hit, and and Red wanted to go back and bash him, and and Skipper wouldn't let him, and he he hoisted sail, and, and, and we went back home. His voice trailed off inconclusively. Cam looked up into Yan's face, but the fire had died, and with it any chance of eye-to-eye questioning. "'That's what happened? For real?' Yan nodded so vigorously that Cam could hear his hair flapping into his face. Roaring Jack's voice boomed around the little cove. "'Nobody ashore at night. Everyone aboard. Now!' Cam relaxed his grip. "'Yan tugged his hand free and ran towards the molly. "'Coming, Skipper! I'm on my way!' "'Cam scuffed sand on the last few red embers and walked slowly to the molly. "'He knew enough of the craft of lying to be sure that Yan was using pieces of truth "'to conceal what he did not want to say. "'Yan and Skarm were already aboard, so Cam tossed the pots and pans into the cockpit— And helped Red Ian and Roaring Jack push the bow off the beach. The two big men barely wetted their knees, but Cam went into his waist before all three clambered aboard and set the anchors for the night. Yan was already curled up asleep in one corner of the cabin when Cam stripped off his wet clothes and hung them along the boom. Cold and wet on the arse, said Red Ian cheerfully as he went below. "'But we a bit of luck it washed the smell of fish off your brakes, young Cam.' Leaving the big man to stand his watch, Cam went below. In the dim light of a turned-down lantern, he saw three blanket-wrapped forms that took up almost all the available space. Soft breathing noises mingled with the tap of ripples against the molly's hull. When his foot reached the last step of the companionway, he stepped on his blanket roll, that someone had set out for him. He blew out the lantern, wrapped the blanket around himself, and crawled under the hanging table. He lay awake for some time, wondering what Yan might have said if Roaring Jack had not interrupted them. Cam recalled Scarm's advice about saying nothing of their suspicions about Alana's death, and he fell asleep, telling himself never to be alone with Yan. You have been listening to the Astrea Trilogy, Book one. The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.